Welcome to So You Want to Be a Witch, the podcast for soul-centered entrepreneurs and the people who love them. Welcome back to So You Want to Be a Witch. I am your host, Sarah M. Chapel, and I'm here today with Dr. Carolyn Elliott. Dr. Carolyn Elliott. Carolyn is a coach, a teacher, and the author of the new book, Existential Kink, which I am super excited to talk about. What a a dreamy name. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) And I mean, has been an online programming teacher for for quite some time. Uh, Carolyn, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I'll start with my favorite question. Who are you and what do you do in this world? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a teacher, a coach, and an author. I also like to, in a grandiose fashion, think of myself as a prophet of uh, Hermes Trimistagistus. I'm really into Hermeticism. Let's see, what do I do? Well, I show people how to integrate their unconscious. So we can call that shadow integration. We could also call that integrating your divinity because they're all part of the same thing. But I I like to call it the alchemy of the psyche, working with transmuting suffering, fear, pain, all of that kind of stuff into beauty, bounty, joy. And uh, the way that I'd like to do that, one of the primary ways is with my existential kink meditation method, which I wrote a whole book about, as you also just mentioned. And it, I'm glad you like the name. I think it's a really fun name too. I had to fight to keep the name. So, <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah. The older gentleman at Wiser, um, because it's published by Wiser Books, which is my favorite occult publisher, like I'm very, very honored. They also, you know, keep Aleister Crowley in print and everything. So they were a little bit wary. They were like, what does this even mean? Who is going to know what this means? And I was like, please, please trust me. Millennial women will know what it means and they will like it. Just (laughs) Uh, Let's dive in there. Um, For you, what is existential kink and why was it important for it to have this name? Because it, it is potent and I imagine you had a good reason for fighting for it. Uh, yeah, well, so existential kink is uh, well, it's a lot of things. It's a meditation method. It's a life philosophy. It's basically this idea that we all have, um, all of us humans have these repressed, denied, disowned desires for taboo things, things that we are not supposed to want, things like scarcity, rejection, humiliation, failure. We all have these desires, um, and we can make these desires conscious because as long as they're unconscious, they actually control us and control our lives in some pretty dramatic ways. So the idea is that by recognizing that they're in there, we can celebrate these desires, we can honor them, we can recognize the fulfillment that they sneakily create in our lives because like I said, these desires have generative power. So um, anyways, we can celebrate what they create and actually get off on them. Just like somebody in a S&M scene could get off on being whipped or get off on being, you know, in bondage. We are in bondage to our own unconscious programming and desires. So the idea with existential kink is we can enjoy that. And as we enjoy it, 
We make those previously unconscious desires conscious and we free ourselves from the patterns that they otherwise perpetuate in our lives. So the pioneering psychotherapist Carl Jung said something so brilliant, and I've just found it to be extremely true. He said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And I I have plenty of stories to tell about that. But yeah, I, I think that sort of puts it out there as a starting point. And I thought it was important that we keep the name existential kink because it really is, it's not about having a bedroom kink or something that you just do for sexy fun time. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) these are kinks that totally affect your whole existence. They affect your whole life. I mean, I at least have many of them and I think pretty much every other human does too. So the name really sums up what's going on. And it also it creates some curiosity, it creates some titillation. And I think it points to the way that it's fundamentally playful what's going on with us in human condition, (laughs) in the human condition. (laughs) Like we know that BDSM people, they call it play and they set up scenes and with safe words and agreements and containers to explore things that might not be fun if they just suddenly started happening out of nowhere but they are fun because they're agreed upon and there's containers. And likewise, with existential kink, I believe that we need to start looking at our lives as play, as games that we have agreed to and consented to in some cosmic sense. And when we do that, that opens up a lot more flexibility with how we experience the events, the situations, the sensations of our lives. Yes, that is so juicy. I love this reframing of, or, or this way of looking at things that are, are, are our shadow or limiting beliefs or something, and we get to bring it up to the table in such a different, like it just, the flavor of talking about it this way just feels so different than like looking at limitations or looking at the things that are fucking you up. Instead, it's like we get to actually engage with them um, through this lens of play how did you start to to create this work? Give us some of the, I guess, like, let's zoom back in time, Carolyn, and like, where does this really come from for you? Yeah, so some years back, I guess it was around 2015, 2016, um, I was just getting started as a coach, and I was kind of struggling. I was doing some freelance writing also, And I could not make more than the same amount of money that I had made with my stipend while I was a PhD student. They paid me $1,500 a month. And even after I had graduated and was out on my own hustling in the world, it still seemed like that was the ceiling on how much I could earn each month. And it's not a lot. (laughs) It's like Mm -hmm. enough to subsist on. And sometimes some months it was even less than that. And I would find myself like standing in line at the food bank. Um, I would be scrounging in dumpsters with my punk rock friends. I would be, you know, I was sleeping on couches. I was just really in a bad state. And I started, I had read all of this psychology. I'd gotten my um, doctorate in critical and cultural studies, which involves reading more psychology than a lot of psychologist programs (laughs) do these days. So reading a lot of Jung, reading Freud, reading um, 
all sorts of philosophy too. So Heidegger, Nietzsche. And I knew from that, that there was this thing called the unconscious and that it's possible that, let me slow down a second, that it's possible for some part of us to desire things that our ego does not desire. So for example, nobody's ego wants anything bad to happen because the ego is the part of us that's identified with this physical body and that is concerned with survival. But I started to get really curious um, in combination with all of the psychology I'd read and also because I'd always been into manifestation and law of attraction stuff. And, you know, if you listen to the law of attraction teachers, they'll talk about, you know, you get what you desire. (laughs) And one day I was standing in line for the food bank and I was like, Um, well, this is certainly not what my conscious mind desires. Like my conscious mind desires to have a ton of money and to (laughs) feel awesome and to be, you know, eating at a beautiful restaurant in Paris right now, not standing in this food line in Pittsburgh. And I was like, I wonder though, if some unconscious part of me really actually desires this and loves this. And that question just started to stir around in my mind and I would observe myself and I would observe how, you know, each month when it was time to pay the rent, I would go into this like deep scramble. I would be like hustling so hard trying to find, you know, it was like proving myself over and over again, like proving that I can do it. And I realized that I got enormous pleasure out of it. I got so much pleasure out of the big operatic drama of surviving for another month and proving that I could do it. And, you know, when I felt into the humiliation of standing in line at the food bank and having to ask my mother for money to pay my dental bill or whatever, like, I could feel that there was also like a rich layer of pleasure in that humiliation too. And at the time I was learning about sexuality stuff, learning about kink. I was involved with a group that practiced something called orgasmic meditation, which involves, um, oh boy, that's a whole thing unto itself, but it's a- it Sounds sort of, promising. It is, it is very fascinating. It's a very wonderful um, thing, but it involves, uh, it's a partnered practice where somebody strokes a woman's clitoris for 15 minutes in a very sort of regulated way. Like there's this whole container with plastic gloves and lube and a timer and a special sequence of events. It's sort of like a kind of Zen Tantra practice. But within that meditation, the clitoral stroking meditation, um, I'd come to realize that there was a range of sensation that I was comfortable with. And there were sensations. So for example, there were some strokes that I immediately easily was able to feel pleasure in. But then there were other strokes that would feel like too much, like, oh, that's just tingly or that tickles or that hurts. And I became really, really curious about, you know, what is it that separates something that I enjoy, a sensation that I enjoy from something that I don't enjoy? And I found that it was mostly just um, habit and just, you know, preconceived notions. So within that practice of orgasmic meditation, I was already in the habit of trying to expand the amount of sensation that I was willing to experience as pleasure. So, okay, this, this clitoral stroke usually feels uncomfortable to me, but can I 
relax and open myself to it and see if I can experience that as pleasure. And I would find that when I did that, I was able to, and usually actually the stroke that had seemed so uncomfortable and so terrible to begin with, actually when I relaxed into it was enormously wonderful. So I sort of, I was operating on this theory that maybe life is like that. And I actually, the more I, I work with this, the more I think it's true, which is that everything in life, it's like the universe making love to us. Everything is a stroke. Everything is a touch. You know, the thoughts in my mind, the things that other people say to me, the events in my day, everything is a stroke. I'm constantly being touched by phenomenal existence. And I can decide to expand the range of sensation that I'm willing to experience as pleasure within this. So I found that I could let myself experience the faster heartbeat and the flushing cheeks that came with contemplating my humiliation about being broke as pleasure. That when I did that, I could actually experience like, genital orgasms, sometimes sometimes genital orgasms, sometimes it would just be a sense of laughter or a release in my heart or feeling some kind of other energy shifts in my body. But I worked with that and I worked specifically on my um, enjoyment of scarcity and my enjoyment of feeling like I had to prove myself. And I just really focused on that for a few weeks. And I was just like, you know what? This is a part of me. This is an unconscious desire that I have. I don't know exactly why it's here. I could speculate all sorts of things with my parents and childhood and whatever, but it's here and um, it's part of me and I'm just going to honor it and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to stop pretending for just a few weeks. I'm going to stop pretending like I don't like this. (laughs) I'm going to stop pretending like... I should have something else going on or that I want something else to be going on because actually this is what I want. This is entertaining me immensely. And I'm just going to humble myself and cherish this entertainment that's here. And I found something remarkable happened, which basically I took that attitude for just a few weeks and suddenly Um, my mind just became so fertile and so much more receptive to all of these ideas um, with my coaching business that I just, it's not like they were impossible, bizarro ideas. They were actually some pretty standard marketing (laughs) ideas, but they were so outside of my perception previously. It was like I had been blind to them before, but suddenly I was open. I was And I think it had to do with the fundamental change of identity because when I took this existential kink attitude, I went from seeing myself as this like tragic character suffering in poverty to seeing myself as this completely fulfilled, crazy, kinky bitch who was just really getting off on being broke. And that's why it was happening. But anything else could be happening too. And so anyways, I was seeing myself as a fulfilled person for the first time, really, And what started happening was I just, I got all of these ideas for things to do in my business. And a few months later, I was making $10,000 a month, then $20,000 a month. And now it's not uncommon for me to have $100,000 months in my business. And I'm working on having, you know, a million dollars a month, things like that. So, and I, I know when I start talking about those big numbers, it can be like, whoa, that's, it gets a little bit abstract, but 
basically what I'm saying is I discovered that this was a mode of dissolving my attachment to my old patterns and of making room for momentous growth. And I noticed that it worked not just for me, but it also worked for my coaching clients who I taught the process to. And then I started teaching it in my online courses and it just got bigger and bigger. And I started applying it to different things in my life and teaching other people how to apply it to different things. And it just evolved into this whole awesome, um, really it's, it's becoming like a tradition of, <laughs> of transmutation work now because I have a, um, a coach training program called Game of Sovereigns. And I've trained coaches there to do this work and now they're helping me do it with other people. So anyways, yeah, existential kink. Mm. I'd love to go a little bit deeper, um, whether both personally, but also kind of conceptually into that, that jump, because even that jump from like, it sounds like basically accepting and like, like sinking into the enjoyment of the situation that your subconscious has desired and created mm-hmm. to then how that opens up possibility. And it was so interesting because then you, you started talking about, you know, your revenue numbers jumping and, and all the ideas that came and now you have, you know, a coaching training, right? Mm-hmm. And I know we have folks listening who did exactly what you anticipated and were like, those big numbers are abstract, right? Or, or maybe it was more than abstract. Maybe they were like, oh my God, that's terrifying. Or, mm-hmm. oh, that's bad, right? <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. it's so uh, bad. So, uh, so it's so bad, right? <laughs> it's bad. It's bad to even say those numbers out loud. Um, can we, can we go in there a little bit? Because I, I'm, I'm going to venture. I bet you see a lot of this with financial stuff with people. Oh yeah. 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 Money is hugely sensational. Um, <laughs> that's the, that's my new favorite quote. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I think of it this way. So, for example, in um, in Hinduism and Buddhism, sex, sexuality has been a major focus of tantric practice for a long time, and it still is. There's still, you know, there's modernist neo tantra people also, and the traditional thing still goes on. I actually think that money is just as charged subject as sex, and that you can do just as much tantric healing when working with money and sales as you can with, with sex. So yes, I, I know exactly what you mean. It's, uh, there's all sorts of, um, well, unconscious <laughs> <laughs> patterns and shadows and desires surrounding money. And well, I let, I guess maybe let me slow us down for a second, Sarah. I, I felt like I was hearing a question in what you were saying about that moment of switching. Yes. Or, of, there, okay. there were so many questions there, but we can start with that first one is, I mean, can, yeah, let's talk about that shift, right? Go a little bit deeper there because it sounds pretty transformational. You, you embraced this work, embraced your present situation, found pleasure in it. And then within a couple months had gone from $1,500 to $10,000 a month. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it was super <laughs> cool. Plus I moved to Bali. It was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, the way that I like to explain it is that something very, very special happens when we celebrate and get off on our previously unconscious desires, which is there's actually, so, you know, this is a huge deal in magic, especially in the Western esoteric tradition, something called the alchemical marriage. So the alchemical marriage, if you look at old manuscripts, you'll see it depicted as like a king and queen 
in union, you know, with a king has a solar disc and the queen usually has a lunar symbol and they might be combined together into a hermaphroditic figure, something like that. Um, and it's it can be phrased as the union of the masculine and the feminine, which it certainly is. But I think more precisely in today's language, it's the union of the conscious and the unconscious minds. And that union is actually completely necessary for, I believe, for all forms of magic. I think any kind of magic you look at from anywhere in the world, any point in history, you can see that what people are doing is they're creating a channel of communication um, with the unconscious. And of course, other words for the unconscious could be the spirit world or the other world. So what makes existential kink a little bit different is a lot of methods of creating that union sort of go the route of um, let's just sort of beat the unconscious into submission. <laughs> let's make it go along with what the conscious mind wants and let's have a union that way, sort of almost by force. So let's, you know, do ritual dances for days on end until we blur the boundaries between this world and the next. And then we will insert some, you know, our songs and our intention in there. And that's how we'll do the communication, which of course is, is great. Um, existential kink though, is specifically about humbling the conscious mind to the unconscious mind. So I, I like to say it's sort of like the conscious mind is like a knight who's going out on a quest and has all of these ideals and goals that the knight wants to achieve. But the knight wants the support of this beautiful lady. And in order to get the support of the lady, the knight has to humble himself. He has to get down on his knees. He has to say, I am here for you. You are so amazing. Please let me just exist in service to you. So the union that way, it's sort of like, um, I like to think it's more romantic. <laughs> it's, uh, it's this very deep union that comes from the humbling of the conscious mind to the unconscious mind. And in that moment, the unconscious becomes fertilized by the intentions of the conscious mind. So all of, So this is the way that I think of it. So as I said, while I was standing in that food bank line, my conscious mind all along wanted to be wealthy. <laughs> my conscious mind, you know, always was fantasizing about world travel and beautiful hotels and beautiful restaurants and clothes and things like that. And at the moment that I actually started humbling my ego and celebrating my unconscious desires and my unconscious enjoyments and letting those just be so received and so, you know, taking in the pleasure for those. The conscious intention for wealth and expansion and beauty entered the unconscious, which is receptive. And then the unconscious, which is fertile, it's like a womb, um, and it gestates. It gestated those seeds, and then it started giving birth to them in the form of external, you know, external in quotation marks, because there is no <laughs> actual external world, <laughs> external, internal, very, very fluid. Anyways started giving birth to synchronicities, opportunities, experiences that matched those conscious intentions. So this is very interesting. This is like the heart of magic. It's the sexual process of magic. It's very amazing and dear to my heart. And the fascinating thing about it 
is not only can it get you everything that you want, <laughs> but also it's a hugely elevating um, spiritual path. So the more you do this union of the conscious and the unconscious, I mean, I could get, oh boy, how esoteric or do we want to oh, get? Let, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> We're okay. here for it. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Um so very esoterically speaking, some of your listeners might be familiar with the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life. There's this center of consciousness called Tifereth in the Western esoteric tradition, and that name means beauty. And it's sort of like, it's, it's heart-centered consciousness. And it's, the idea is that it's this mode of consciousness where you are completely in communication with your larger self with the part of you that has died and been reborn thousands of times, that's very highly evolved and that knows everything that has happened or will happen. And it's just kind of like the complete soul version of you, like the oversoul of you, you could say. I, I also like to think of it as um, the portion of divinity that is specifically concerned with you. So you reach this state of consciousness and it's enormously expansive and it's a deep connection to intuition that you otherwise wouldn't have. And anyways, what I'm trying to say is this process, existential kink can take you there. And that's one of the reasons why I've become such an excited student of hermeticism recently is because I've realized just how possible it is to make the unconscious conscious and that what you achieve when you do that is exactly what all of the alchemists and magicians in olden times <laughs> were talking about these results that have for centuries seemed extremely elusive and like maybe they were only the property of like, I don't know, grumpy old men who were willing to live very ascetic lives. They are not that. And that's what I'm so excited about. And yeah, I'll just pause there because I think I'm getting a little bit rambly. Mm, but a great ramble. So <laughs> now I was like, yes, it's like, let's, let's, let's go esoteric land. Um, <laughs> so I love that you've created a, a tool here that, that actually takes some of this, this esoterica and is making it, it sounds, I mean, delightful, but also really practical, which is going to be a remarkably useful tool for all the, all the new people you're going to reach with your book, which is so juicy. Um, but let's get, let's, let's bring that loop that back around to money. Because I was, I'm so interested. We're talking about the um, kind of sexual alchemy and tantra, and then we have like, yeah, money, money in Western culture, um, and how when you started to make those shifts, that that changed for you. Um, mm -hmm. When you're looking at the landscape of people you work with and support with this, what are some of the common things that people are running into? Yeah, so there's a very common idea that money is this terrible, evil thing that oppresses all of us. And I love that idea. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> I had it for a long time. I was very involved in like the Occupy Wall Street type protests and everything. And yeah, we could begin to speak to that one. What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. I think that's going to resonate a lot. <laughs> okay, so one little idea that I would like to introduce to everybody is that money is actually incredibly gentle and incredibly peaceful, just like a wildly peaceful force in the world. And one of the ways that I want to introduce people to thinking about money that way is to think about how goods and power 
were exchanged before money existed. Because I used to have a very, very idealistic... Okay, actually, hold on. I'm going to pause. First, before I go into talking about how gentle and sweet money actually is, (laughs) I do want to validate that people's feeling like money is evil and like having a lot of it means you're bad. Those intuitions come from a very correct place, a very loving, empathetic, um, deep place of sensing that there is something off with the way that we have organized our world. And I don't deny that there are things that are off about the way that the world (laughs) is organized and, and that we humans can do better. And also money, one way to think about money that I find useful is to think of it as a distillation of the whole world. So in, in Eastern religions, um, like Hinduism, like Buddhism, it's commonly talked about that the world is an illusion. You know, one of the names for that illusion is Maya, this beautiful dancing goddess. And money is sort of like a little distilled mini version of the whole dancing wheel of um, Maya or samsara. So it contains, you know, all beauty and value and also all um, sadness and tragedy and, and horror. And so it's this distilled form of that. Um, another thing that makes money very slippery and, and very concentrated and distilled is that it's a form of language. And um, so this insight was given to me by my friend Dave Burns, and I've just been pondering it ever since because it's so genius. Money, like all language, has no meaning apart from the social meaning that we agree to give it. So, so I'll just put that out there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so just sort of putting, putting some little, oh, sorry, I keep getting these texts and I don't know how to turn them off. Um, but just these little notions here that money is, it's understandable to have conflicted feelings about money because it's understandable to have conflicted feelings about the world and being incarnated at all (laughs) because uh, incarnation is not easy. You know, it always involves experiencing pain and witnessing others experiencing pain. Okay. So those are a few preliminary remarks about money. Money also carries, how do I say? It carries the energies of resentment because it has to do with debt. And what is a resentment except a feeling of you owe me something, right? So money is always created as debt. It's, you need at least three people to have money as we know it. You need somebody, because it's, it's a little IOU, right? So let's say that um, I want to get berries from Tom and I don't have anything to trade him. So I give him a little IOU note that says, uh, hey, Tom, I owe you um, five bushels of wheat. And I give that IOU note to Tom. And then Tom wants to get something from Mary, but he doesn't have anything else to trade Mary. So he says, hey, Mary, I have this IOU note from Carolyn for five bushels of wheat. Will you accept this IOU note instead of something tangible because you know that Carolyn's good for it. And Mary will be like, yeah, you can give me that. I'll take that. So that's really the origin of money. It's IOU notes. And, um, and that little story that I gave made it sound like it has more to do with um, training, with trading than it 
maybe necessarily did, but uh, sorry, I have the whole the whole history of currency is jumbling around in my mind right now. <laughs> um, but a lot of people think that money started with like cacao beans or cowrie shells or some other little form of currency, and it's true that those kinds of currencies existed to even out trading. But money as we know it, paper money, abstracted money, is, as I said, an IOU note that's inevitably involved with debt. So as it are, for example, the U.S. currency now, the dollar, is an IOU note that's created in the ledgers of the Federal Reserve, which is this kind of curious institution that's not actually part of the government, but is a bank, basically, that's connected to the government and that can make money as it can issue as much money as it wants, essentially, because it's all just an invention. It's all language. And this is what I didn't understand for a long time. I thought, oh, you know, there's a finite amount of money in the world. And if I have a lot of it, that means that I'm taking it from someone. And I see why the temptation is to believe that. Uh, Certainly there are there is finitude that we encounter with resources. You know, there's only so much oil in the earth, for example, things like that. But money actually has this very interesting quality of infinitude about it in that it's simply an agreement and it can be generated out of thin air at will. It's a very specific form of magic. You could say it's an institutional form of magic that these nation states have mastered but currently we have a lot of interesting things on the horizon with bitcoin you know digital currencies blockchain currencies that can separate um money from the state so you know a few hundred years ago we had the separation of church and state and that was a really wonderful amazing thing and i'm excited i think that we will soon have the separation of money and state and that that will be another really amazing liberating thing so I'm wondering, Sarah, has what I have what I have said so far made a moderate amount of sense? I've had a lot of coffee today. So. Oh my God, you you're in the right place. I coffee coffee is king over here for sure. Um, but my brain's in about the same state. But yes, it has. And I think the thread that's really kind of interesting to pick up is this idea that the language of money is built kind of historically or and currently on debt. So it has that flavor to it, which is is influencing how people are relating to it in addition to this idea that it's finite. So mm-hmm. if we have this like money is like these like money is bad, money like I'm guilty if I have it, I'm taking it away from other people, how do we then bring that into kind of this practical state of like how does that become play, Carolyn? <laughs> yes. So one of the first places that I would like to invite people to start is really taking a look at how much resentment they have. (laughs) Because, you know, if I say that I don't like money and money is bad and money causes all these negative things, it's like, "Mm, yeah, yeah. And money perfectly corresponds to the resentment in me. So I have, you know, pretty much every human that I've ever met has tons of resentments. (laughs) Oh, sure. And, Sign me up. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And money is in part that it's that energy of resentment of like something is owed to somebody and there's, and it can pull and motivate you to, um, you know, 
uh, sort of fulfill that sense of, of being owed or somebody, you know, has that kind of energy in it of pulling you or pushing you. So first thing is to get really, really cozy with the amount of resentment that you have and just notice what that resentment is doing for you. Like it's doing all sorts of wonderful things for you. It's making you feel separate from people you don't like. It's giving you a sense of righteousness. You know, it does all of these delicious, beautiful things resentment does. So first of all, I like to ask people to get very loving and cozy and intimate with their resentments. And um, to recognize that they can have that kind of loving, cozy relationship with money too. That there's no, okay, how do I say? Um, that I can't blame money for having an energy that I'm full of. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that piece to it. And another way that I like to ask people to begin to think about money and to begin to think about playfulness with it is to consider the origins of it. So we know historically, and this is all laid out in one of my favorite books, which is called um, Money, an an Unauthorized Biography, and it's by a guy named Felix Martin. So money as we know it really got started in ancient Greece. And the thing was, was that the Sumerians, the Babylonians, um, already had writing and the Greeks didn't have it. The Greeks were sort of in kind of a primitive tribal state at that point still. They didn't have writing. They were using, you know, they had oral culture and they had beautiful Homeric oral uh, traditions and things like that, but they didn't have writing. But what they did have was they had a system that was pretty much unique in that whenever they would go hunting, they would always divide the hunt equally among the citizens of the tribe. So they had this notion of a standardized unit that didn't exist anywhere else. No other tribe had this weird idea of dividing things equally, but the Greeks did. So when they got the technology of writing from the Babylonians, and they started to be able to create these IOU note type things, they also had this notion of a standardized unit of one thing, you know, this note means this, and then this many notes is this many standardized units of it. So this was an amazing innovation because up until then, the only way that exchanges happened were really through um, inheriting things. So inheritance, if your family had a lot of goods and they were dying, they would give it to you. They'd be like, hey, you get this now. Or uh, seizing it from other people. So you go and you take your boat and you take all your spears and you go find somebody who has a lot of stuff and you, you know, stick your spears in their belly and you take it. <laughs> That's the other way to get stuff. Uh, the, the other way would be something called gift economy, which sounds very beautiful and very sweet. But actually what it is in practice in most places where it existed, uh, it still exists today in some parts of the world. But it's basically just aristocratic families um, competing with each other. They give each other lavish gifts um, to establish dominance because the person who can give the biggest gift is obviously more important and more cool. And then the other person, you know, has to try and reciprocate and they, they go back and forth like that. 
And then of course there's marriage, which you could say is sort of another form of the inheritance idea, but marriage was another big form of exchange. So marriage, inheritance, uh, violence, and um, aristocratic gift exchange. That was how goods were flowing. When money was invented, it created this whole transgressive revolution where suddenly anybody who could create something valuable about a good or a service that was desired by other people could accumulate wealth. And previously, there had been no way to get wealth other than by being violent or by being born into or married into the right family. So the god um, that the Greeks associated with money um, is Hermes, uh, the god of language, because they recognized money as a form of language. And Hermes began to get all of these associations, you know, as a thief, as a liar, as this transgressive figure, because the aristocratic families in Greece were deeply disturbed by this innovation of money that was so radically upending their traditions and their grip. So I think that the energy of money still has that revolutionary potential. And I think especially when it is um, not tied to nation states. So money, as we have experienced it for hundreds of years, has been really directly connected with governments. You know, the United States issues dollars. Businesses in the United States have to accept dollars. Um, you can only pay U.S. taxes in dollars. <laughs> and there's this sort of, um, you know, grip on it that, and that's what I think that people actually find very uncomfortable is the fact that this thing that I think we sense has this great potential for flow and movement and, and everything gets kind of weirdly contained um, by governments that they achieve that containment by using force. So something, again, that's interesting about money is it's both a way of exchanging value and it is a store of power. So, um, and when I say it's a store of power, I mean that very literally in the sense of, you know, if I have money, I can use it to, let's say, I don't want to do my landscaping for my lawn, but I can pay some guys and they will come and they will landscape my lawn and it'll be beautiful. Um, I have, that's power. I just made something happen that wasn't happening otherwise, right? Like we, we can kind of intuitively understand that. Like that's what it means to be powerful is you can make something happen. So money is this very interesting way by which we can make things happen and by which we can express how much we value something. There's another way, another, I mean, there's other forms of making things happen though. And one of those main ways, as I talked about earlier, um, is violence. <laughs> and the, the U.S. government for hundreds of years has done a fantastic job of enforcing the use of the dollar as currency um, through its military and everything like that. So I think people are not just uncomfortable with money, they're uncomfortable with power, possibly because they've only ever seen um, unjust uses of power. I don't think that money necessarily has to be unjust. I don't think that the way that we use it has to be, but 
anyways, just sort of pointing to all these various things. This is so juicy, y'all. Make sure you go back and listen to this for a second time if you're listening right now. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm, I had never quite made that connection to that inherent, that kind of structure and constraint aspect to it, which is really fascinating, especially when we're looking at folks who are like entrepreneurs and online business owners and makers and mystics who tend to be people who do not respond well to constraint or they wouldn't be running their own businesses. So we have this like this tension between the very tool that enables them to do their work uh, and and their who they are as people, like as on like kind of a core identity level a lot as well. Yeah, it's interesting. It's well, I mean, obviously these are still ongoing questions that I explore myself. Like what is going on here with, like, for example, we have all of this structural inequality right now. So everybody knows we have this huge concentration of wealth amongst a handful of people. And then the rest of us are like sharing what's left, right? <laughs> yes. And, and so that, that is like one like starts scratching one's head and being like, what exactly let this happen? And I guess I just, you know, I'm putting the thought out there that it's not just money itself that let this concentration happen. It's a plenty of violence, plenty of laws, plenty of things went into creating this atmosphere of concentration. And I suspect that, well, let me just put it this way. I think that as magical spiritual people, we are actually in an excellent position to generate wealth for ourselves, despite what seems to be happening with any economic conditions. Um, Because, as I said, um, money is a form of language, of agreement. And we we know, we can learn how to create meanings, agreements, values, and stories that capture people's imagination, that capture their attention, that drive their desire. And then we can translate that into money on the market. So there's a way in which, okay, here's another piece that is kind of can be difficult to get into or wrap one's mind around. At least I've struggled with it a lot which is that the physical world is not the primary world. (laughs) The physical world is a world of effects. It's not a world of causes. So the actual causes for everything that we experience happen first in the realm of will, imagination, emotion, feeling, idea, thought. And then it concretizes. So... And as we've already talked about, there's a way in which money actually is infinite, even just in the literal way that it's created in this world. There's no actual limits on it. Uh, You could argue, you could say like, oh, well, but if the Federal Reserve just created tons and tons of money and put into circulation, then we would have inflation. And yes, we would. And there are still these finer points with how people use the tools of valuing and power and everything like that. But I'm, I guess what I'm interested in is I'm interested in the way that it's um, possible to create lots of wealth and lots of beauty here in the material world by first creating it mentally, spiritually, with our will, with our desire, with our words, and then how that 
that process of manifestation can occur. So, sorry, segue time, Carolyn. Mm-hmm. If, if people want to learn how to do this, <laughs> where can people find out more about your work and the book and, and start to dive in here? Because I, I mean, I, I think we've shown through this, I mean, your, your beautiful tying together of all these different elements of how critical it is to, to step into that place of, of, of power and desire for ourselves to actually create, as you said, the effect in the world that we actually want. Uh, so where can folks find you? Thank you. Yes. So um, if anybody is interested in hearing more from me, I would encourage them to join my email list at carolyngraceelliot.com slash free. When you enter your email address there, you get the first three chapters of my book for free, which shows you how to do the existential kink process. And you also get added to my email list, which is where I announce um, when my programs are opening. The main program that I'm doing this year, uh, it should open a few more times um, this year, is called Wealth. And in Wealth, we work with the alchemy of the psyche to create the kind of wealth that we want in material, emotional, spiritual dimensions. I have mentorship conversations with members. We have these live, um, awesome, super fun social events called Power Ups, where we play these fun intimacy and communication games. We have an advanced study seminar where um, I'm taking people basically into a deep dive on historical, philosophical, magical topics. And um, we also have support. We have workshops where coaches that I've trained support you in doing various um, solvay and coagula processes. Those are alchemical terms about dissolving and recombining things in the psyche to create change. So yeah, so that's happening. My email list, my book, the program Wealth, and yeah. You're you're super low-key and not busy at all. I get that from you. (laughs) Yeah, like we were just saying with this, all of the lockdown and the quarantine things, I've just been going hard, hard as ever. (laughs) Same. Same. I was like, I I have like nap FOMO. I'm like, okay. Um, we'll link all of that up in the show notes. Uh, so you guys can go and follow Carolyn, get on the mailing list, make sure to order the book so that you can dive deeper into this work. And Carolyn, thank you so much for being here today. This has been a true treat of a conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh, such a delight, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening at home. We listen because of you. You are, we listen. No, you listen. Damn it. Oh, well, let's try that again. Strike that, reverse it. Thank you. Um, We record so you can listen. That's the order because we we, we wouldn't be here without you. So thank you so much for listening. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, pass it along to a friend who, who wants to start to untangle some of these, these deeper, these deeper desires are they're unconscious and, uh, and talk about money because who doesn't want to do that? Super fun. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye for now. 